Thank you, Tony, Lacey, and Wes. My name is Kenan Vaughn, and I've got the unique privilege of being the pastor here at Harvest Church. <clears throat> We're seven months old, for those of you that are visiting, seven and a half months old. And uh, we are not a perfect church. We don't have it all figured out. <clears throat> um, but we are excited about what God is doing here, amen? Uh, just excited. Believe that the Holy Spirit is the one leading this deal, and we are clinging to him through prayer so that we know exactly what steps to take, when to take them, and how to take them. And I'm excited because of our commitment to following the Lord and knowing that he will lead our church to glorify him according to his will and good pleasure. If y'all will turn with me to Romans chapter 3, that's where we're going to be here in a moment. Uh, we're starting a brand new series today. Great time to be visiting. If you are, Romans chapter 3 will be in verse 21 in a moment. Our series is called Justified. We are going to talk about what it means to be justified. Now, the word justified means uh, declared righteous, Declare, to be declared righteous. And if we're going to be a church that is truly a gospel-driven church, we've got to understand what it means to be declared righteous because being justified is central to the gospel. Central. And matter of fact, I might even call it the sweet nectar of the gospel. That's a term that's probably new to some of you guys. Let me tell you where it came from in my life. I was in Zambia in 2004 with a mission team, and it was only my second time overseas. And on this trip, uh, we were, it was our first night. We showed up at this uh, kind of youth hostel where we were going to stay, and they put out some food, and it was kind of a serve yourself. And we had been traveling for like 26 hours. We were so hungry. And we had no idea what they were going to serve us. I came up, I was the uh, uh, first one up to the buffet, and, and uh, there was just this, like, three huge bats, and they all had the same thing in there, which was pretty much looked like mashed potatoes. And that was perfect for me. I mean, I was starving, mashed potatoes. I wanted to take, like, a whole vat. So I held myself to three heaping portions, and, uh, and I went over, and, and I got about one or two bites into that, and I realized that was not mashed potatoes. <laughs> if any of you have been to Zambia, you've had uh, jima which is their staple food. And I don't even know how to describe it to you other than to say it is not mashed potatoes. Um, if you go, just be prepared for that. It's something totally different. And so I learned a hard lesson that night that uh, in lieu of their hospitality and my uh, uh, exorbitant selfishness in loading my plate, I had to take it all down. And so uh, I did. And what helped was they were serving us this juice. And I didn't know what the juice was, but it was the best juice I had ever tasted. Uh, it was uh, kind of yellow-reddish, uh, might have been papaya or mango, I have no idea. But it was so fresh and so good, and I mean, I was getting by Jima and just, you know, <laughs> kick it back. And, and I was working this thing through, and all the guys were um, uh, kind of commenting on, what, is, what are we drinking? Like, this is incredible. And they were like, oh, it's, it's all fresh squeezed from the produce of our land. And we're like, oh my gosh, this is so good. Well, they kept it in these uh, box cartons, that, and they, they, there was either no writing or writing that was not in English. So we never had any idea what we were drinking, so we just referred to it as the sweet nectar. And every morning we'd get up, and we would be excited to gather around the table, easy on the jima, uh, heavy on the sweet nectar. And uh, that's kind of how we worked our way through the week. Now, let me tell you, when it comes to the gospel of, the Jesus, of Jesus Christ, this, this term of justified, it's the sweet nectar, uh, this is what we have got to understand, get our minds and hearts around and cling to if we're going to understand and appreciate the beauty and majesty of the gospel. As a gospel-driven church, that's the one thing we don't want to miss. We want to understand what indeed it is to be justified. Now, it doesn't mean this. Stay with me. It doesn't mean that we are righteous. Doesn't mean that we are being made righteous. Different term, different theme, different chapter in the Bible 
doesn't mean we're made righteous. Means simply that we've been declared righteous even in the midst of our sin, which is glorious, yet it brings, it begs the question, and the question is, how is that possible? How can God just wink at our sin? How can he declare us righteous when we are not at all righteous and him still be just? Great question. And the answer to that question is not only the heart of justification, it's the heart of the gospel. When Martin Luther saw justification by faith alone, when he saw it, not only did he get saved, he said for the first time in a life of religiosity, his heart was overcome with joy. And he said that joy, the joy of understanding justification by faith never left him, flooded the chambers of his heart. So my hope and prayer all week long has been that the joy of our salvation would literally flood the chambers of our heart as we understand what he understood, justification by faith. Let's ask God to give us eyes to see it. Y'all with me? Uh, Lord, will you open our eyes to see the beauty, to see the majesty of being justified, how that is central to the gospel message. Let us understand the redemption price this morning. Let us understand the sacrifice of propitiation by blood. Let us, let us gain a new insight, fresh revelation from your Holy Spirit at the depth of the gospel of a people standing condemned, declared righteous in sin, and you still being just and holy. Lord, let us see how it fits together and shake us loose from our complacency. God, I pray that in these few moments you would indeed speak, that I would decrease, Lord, that you would increase. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. So if y'all would stand to your feet, we're going to read this passage together. Romans 3, 21, and we're just going to read through 27a. Here we go. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. That's a bomb. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. This is the word of God for the people of God, and the people of God said, praise be to God. Have a seat. Well, verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. This is what we've got to unpack this morning. The, how is the righteousness of God manifested or revealed apart from the law? And to start, we've got to understand this term, the righteousness of God. It can mean really two things, and we've got to have context to help us. Number one, it can mean God's holiness, his standard of perfect righteousness, which he is. He is um, divine and perfect and holy in every way. And the righteousness of God can simply point at his holiness. But in our context, it's pointing to something else. Not merely God's holiness, but how we can attain the holiness of God. 
In other words, how can we be seen as righteous in the presence of a God who is righteous? In other words, without him compromising his standard of righteousness, how can he declare us to be righteous? Y'all with me? Let me tell you the way the Puritans said it. It takes a minute to get your mind around this, but it's really good. All right? Uh, The righteousness of God is the righteousness which the righteousness of God, perfect holiness, requires God to require of us. Just think about it with me. The righteousness which the righteousness of God requires him to require of us is the righteousness of God that we must attain in order to be saved. Now, how in the world can we attain that? How in the world can we attain that righteousness of God? Now, if you notice in our passage, Paul started with, but now. It's never good to come right in on but now. We've clearly missed something. And what we've missed here is uh, vital to our understanding where we're going. So let me give you a little runway into our six, seven verses this morning. If you turn back to chapter one, that but now, this idea of the righteousness of God, builds on the thesis statement of all of Romans, which is in Romans 1, 16 and 17. If you don't have this underlined in your Bible, I'd encourage you to underline this one. This is the thesis statement of Romans, and it is a beautiful statement by Paul. Here we go in verse 16. For I, Paul says, is not ashamed of the gospel. For it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Verse 17. For in it, in what? In the gospel. In the gospel, the righteousness of God. What's the righteousness of God? The righteousness which God's righteousness requires God to require of us. Now, you and I can't attain it, Garrett. We're going to stand condemned on this deal. But in the gospel, it's revealed how we can stand righteous before God. That's why the gospel means good news. Now, watch this. In it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Somehow, we're going to be able to stand before God, be declared righteous, and God still be just, and us still be in sin. What? How is it possible? Well, the answer is found in the gospel. The gospel is the good news that it is possible. There is a way you and I, sinners, wretched in every way possible, purely contaminated by our sin, can be declared righteous. As if we had no sin before a God who is perfectly righteous and he still be just. Good news, if it's true. I hope this morning as we will see that it indeed is exceedingly true. So let's track with Paul for a minute. He rounds out the rest of chapter one, and let me just give you a summary overview, talking about the Greek, the, the, the Gentile world. And he says that God has given all of us, all humanity, all the Greeks, even the non-Jews who don't have special revelation, every human being has general revelation. Paul specifically cites our conscience, whereby we know uh, who we are in sin and our need, and he cites creation in Romans 1, that God has given all of us creation. The idea of creation is that it points to something. What do the stars in the sky point to? What is a beautiful day like we behold today on the way to church? What does it point to? It points to uh, the author behind it all. It points to a creator that's behind creation, that's above creation. And that creator is to be worshiped. So God gives us all the general revelation of creation by which is a means to an end we may bow down to a creator and worship him, even him who we do not know. 
And Paul makes the argument in chapter 1 that Gentiles have, um, um, over the centuries and uh, over the ages of uh, humanity, we have continually rejected God's creation as a means to worship God, and instead we've worshiped the creation. We've settled for far less. We've become idolaters, worshiping things of this world. Even man is the height of the creation. Even worshiping ourselves is the greatest form of idolatry. And so Paul says that God ultimately gives those over to themselves who don't worship him but the means to an end the creation and anyone that rejects the general revelation God has given them in order to worship God will stand culpable and condemned before God. Y'all with me? And so every Greek stands ultimately one day without excuse and not just Greek, every Gentile, every non-Jews where Paul is in chapter one. And so you say, well, what about the Jews? Well, that's why I got chapter two. And in chapter 2, Paul says, it's not just the Gentile. Matter of fact, it's probably worse for the Jew because the Jew doesn't just have uh, uh, general revelation of conscience and creation. The Jew has special revelation. What special revelation does the Jew have? Well, the Jew has the law, 613 do's and don'ts, which tell them how to walk in harmony with their God, love him, know him, serve him. And they get the prophets, more special revelation that literally call them out of their sin and back to repentance when they get off track. So if the Gentile is condemned by his rejection of general revelation, then how much more, this is Paul, not me, how much more is the Jew condemned when he rejects not only general but special revelation? You see where Paul's going? So we get to the end of chapter 2 and guess what? Chapter 3, verse 9, sum it all up, Paul. What then? Are Jews any better off? No, not at all. Here we are. For we have all already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are, what's the word? Under sin. All of us are under sin. Every human being, by virtue of conscience, creation, the law, the prophets, Jew, Gentile, we're all under sin, we've all sinned, we all stand condemned before a holy God, all in the same boat. You with me? Paul builds a two-chapter argument to let us know that we cannot attain the righteousness of God in and of ourselves. Verse 10, he continues, as it is, no one, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Any questions? We get to 19 and he says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Now what does that mean, under the law? When we leave this place today and you turn on Forest Hill Irene or you turn on Winchester and you begin to drive down these uh, roads to go to wherever you're going next, uh, there's probably a speed limit sign somewhere. Can't tell you exactly where one is and that's probably not good. But there's probably one somewhere. And it probably says 35, 40, 45, I'm guessing. Um, And if we pay attention or don't, does that have any bearing on whether we are culpable to those signs? No bearing. If we drive in excess of whatever's written on those little white signs and the police officer pulls us over and says, you are going too fast, can you say, I didn't know? Oh, okay, well, go right ahead. Doesn't happen. Uh, you can argue most anything in any argument you give. Is there any argument you can make that that police officer should indeed let you go? Well, maybe by your judgment or mine, but not according to the law. We are all culpable to what's on those signs because we are indeed under the law, and we will stand culpable if we drive in excess. You with me? 
What does it mean to be under the law? Well, when we sin, whether we understand that we have sinned or not, we will one day stand culpable before God for our sin because we are all under law. And so if you're going to stand before God, which you are and which I am, and you're going to be held accountable for your sin, which you knew about and didn't know about, is there any way then to escape judgment? Yeah, if you were perfect according to the law. If you can be looked at and God can search not only your actions, but your thoughts, your hearts, and say, clean, there is no fault in this man, there is no fault in this woman, then you by the standard of God's righteousness would be declared righteous according to your good works and even the motives behind those works. Anyone want to roll those dice? Not me. Not me. Paul said in Romans 1 and 2, nobody can stand on their own two feet in that moment and be declared righteous according to the law. Nobody. And he gets no argument from me on this one. Look, I, I just I took about two minutes today to think about when I might have... Um, uh, where I might see a reflection of sin in my life this last week. And, and in about 120 seconds, it was so convicting that I just moved on. That over the last seven days, I could see uh, clearly thinking back, man, I was very selfish in those moments. My selfishness led to anger. My selfishness led to a short temper and words that I shouldn't have used in the way I used them with the people I love most. And that was steeped in ultimately pride. And even my motive for doing good was simply that somebody might think better of me. It wasn't that I, I mean, God got convicting. By the way, that's just what I did. That doesn't even go into my thoughts. I, could, I was too scared to lift the covers on that one. And you know, what if, what if uh, here's what I thought of this morning. What if we put my thought life on these two screens for the last eight days? You guys would never let me be your pastor. Never. And if we put yours on the screen, we'd never let you be in this church. <laughs> and the truth of it is, we are all wicked. Every one of us. Nobody in that day is going to raise a hand. We're going to be silent. We are all under sin, and we are all culpable under law to a God who is righteous. And so we stand together as a people who are spiritually leprous. And watch the rest of the verse. What's the result of this? So that every mouth may be stopped. We will not give rebuttal in that day of our violation to God's law. There will be no excuse that is suitable in God's presence. No justification, no rationalization, no excuse. We'll just sit there. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. It'll look kind of like this. All rise. Would the defendant like to say a word? Like to speak? No, your honor, I got nothing to say. Well, then let's have the verdict. Verdict? All the world is guilty. All the world is guilty. And so if you've stumbled in here this morning... And in some way, form, or fashion, you've bought into the idea of performing for God, proving to him, maybe proving to yourself to soothe your own conscience, maybe proving to somebody else through your religiosity, through your good works, through your concern uh, for uh, social action and social justice. But in some way, you would point to yourself as good enough in God's eyes to warrant your fellowship with him justly for all of eternity. And here's what God just did. He just took you whether you are Jew or Gentile, and he cut you loose from your security. 
And he awakens you to the reality that you stand justly condemned before God. Amen? Did it to me too. We all stand justly condemned before God. Look at verse 20. For by works of the law, I want you to see it. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Remember justified, declared righteous. According to your works, no one will be declared righteous since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The point of the law, everybody look, the law is much less a measuring stick which we can look at and and determine whether we've been good enough uh, in order to merit our righteousness before God. Not what the law is intended for. The law is given to us as a mirror by which we may see in it a reflection of our brokenness in light of God's perfection. And so the law is meant to waylay us, to humble us, to bring us to our knees so that blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness that they cannot attain. The law lets us realize that, that we cry out, oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Well, that's where we are when we come to our passage. Are we ready for the but now? But now. So now in light of what? In light of the fact that there is a righteousness of God which we never under the law can possibly attain to stand before God and be declared righteous. We are sinners, guilty, standing, condemned. Okay, by the way, I'm glad, um, you know, if I stroke out right now, somebody come preach the gospel. Uh, Because right now, that's pretty discouraging. All right, we walk out of here condemned, rightly condemned. Well, let's turn the corner on this deal. But 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested. That righteousness, which God's righteousness requires God to require, has been manifested or revealed by God apart from the law, meaning not according to your good deeds, meaning we stand like the Israelites against the Red Sea, And our backs are to the wall, and facing us are Pharaoh's chariots, and they're charging towards us, and judgment is coming 100 miles an hour right at us. And you know what? There's nothing we can do. All we can do is cry out to God for mercy and power unto salvation. And so just like the Jews, they had to stand by in faith to see the salvation of God by his power part the Red Sea that they by grace could walk across. The same is true of you and I. We wait upon the salvation of God to be revealed. We'll never earn it. And it's by power. You know what Paul called the gospel in uh, chapter one? Um, He says, the power of God unto salvation whereby a way is made and we get to walk across by grace through faith in a God who is true, faithful, and just. You with me? All right, stay with me. How in the world is this gonna happen? Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, meaning they don't accomplish it, you will not and cannot be saved according to law. Law gives you a reflection of your need for a savior. The prophets do what? The prophets call you to repent of your sin so that you don't think you can be Merited righteous according to your good deeds. Law and prophet, not meant to save us. Meant to humble us, point us to our need for a savior. They specifically point to Jesus Christ. Here it is, verse 22. The righteousness of God, that's what we're after. Here it is, through faith, circle that. Through faith, the righteousness of God 
through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Through faith means we're gonna have to trust in somebody to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Did y'all hear me on that? Look, if our just condemnation is built on two pillars, everybody look right here. Number one, the absence of righteousness. Man, I am just not righteous. And number two, the presence of sin. I am incredibly sinful. No righteousness, yes to sin. You know what I need to be saved? I need to be not guilty of sin and declared righteous. I'm the opposite. I'm a 180, standing before God on my own. And so here's the truth. For me to be ultimately declared not guilty and declared righteous means somebody is going to have to make a payment for my sin. Amen? And that somebody is going to have to be righteous enough to be able to pay for my sin and it do anything to satisfy the wrath of God, which means it'll have to be some kind of a God-man, not born of the seed of Adam, who will have to literally um, see me in my sin, live a life that I could never live, die a death that I should have died, and pay the wage of my sin, and the wages of my sin is death, He's going to have to stand between me and God as a mediator, as a redeemer, and that's exactly what Jesus did. That's why we call him Christ. He's Messiah. He's redeemer. He's mediator. He stood in the gap as virgin born, having lived a life of perfect righteousness, and he made payment for your and my sin. Amen? Well, how, what does it mean? How do we receive him again? Through faith. What, what does that mean? What, what does it mean through faith? Look, when, you, when you're sick or hurt, you go to the doctor, you let them look at you, do their tests, and ultimately that doctor likely writes you a prescription. You have no idea what he's written on that little three by five note. Only God knows what he has written on there. And you take that little note, which is undecipherable to most humans, and you take it and you give it to a pharmacist. And somehow they have the secret code. They know what's going on. And they go and they fill this prescription and they give it back to you. And you have no idea what's in there. And if you asked them and they told you, you wouldn't understand it. And you know what you do? Swallow it. Let me tell you, that's the best illustration of faith I can imagine. And here's what you're doing. You're putting your faith in someone that you're deeming to be trustworthy, that they can heal you when you can't heal yourself. Let me tell you something, we are spiritually sick. And in the same way we're gonna have to put our faith in a doctor, the ultimate physician, to do for us what we can't do for ourselves and we gotta trust him at his word and swallow whole his prescription. And then we wait and we see if he's true. We see if indeed he is trustworthy. Y'all with me? Now, who's it for? Look right here. For all who believe, one of my favorite little phrases, every phrase of this is just crazy. Do y'all realize that this cannot be written by a human being apart from the inspiration of God? This is too good. No human could understand this apart from the Holy Spirit carrying them along and inspiring every single word. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote a famous commentary on Romans. He gave an entire volume to these six verses. All right. So how am I supposed to preach that in half an hour? Right? I'm just saying. Um, he gave an entire volume to this right here. That rich every phrase. Oh my goodness. Who's it for? All who believe. There's, and why? There's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The reason is for everybody is because we're all in the same boat. We're all equally needy. Some of you need to hear that. 
You are not less needy than the guy on your right or the guy on your left. We all stand justly condemned because we are not just broken but wicked to the core. We're all spiritual lepers. And God has taken action. I love this. We've not only fallen, uh, have sinned, we've fallen short of the glory of God. Circle that phrase. Glory of God. That doesn't mean, Maggie, uh, the beatific vision of God and his Shekinah radiance. Because I know that's what you were thinking. Uh, and, that, and the glory of God can mean that. It does at times. Not this time. This means uh, he whom God glories in, boasts in. We fall short of the glory of God. He sees us for who we are, and he's not overly impressed. He doesn't boast in our righteousness. He doesn't call the angelic realm together and say, everybody, look, behold Kenan. There he is. Look at him go. God doesn't do it. There's only one person who's ever been beheld by the angelic realm. One person who the Holy Spirit lit on at his baptism, one person who heard the words, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. One, and it ain't me, and it ain't you. It's Jesus Christ. God gloried in Jesus. We fall short of his glory. So he is not well pleased in us. He is well pleased in Christ. And the only way he can be well pleased in us is if we are in Christ. We fall short of the glory of God. All right, we're almost to my favorite part. And are justified by his grace as a gift. Oh my goodness. Justified, legal terms, stay with me. Declared righteous, we've established that. It also means to declare not guilty. So here I am standing on my pillars, full of sin, devoid of righteousness. Justification does two things, says I'm not guilty and declares me righteous. Let me give you an illustration. You ladies, imagine that you got in a tiff with your husband. So obviously I'm speaking hypothetically. I know that doesn't happen. But if it were to, and you got in a tiff, and boy, let me listen ladies, you were really offended by him and some of the things he said and some of the things he did. Okay, hypothetical. I mean, you were just, how could he? And he decides that he's going to take initiative and reconcile this disagreement. He comes to you and he says, sweetheart, look, this is enough of this. Let me go ahead and say, I forgive you. (laughs) What's wrong? Does that not do the trick? You know why it doesn't do the trick? Because it assumes something. It assumes that she has wronged you and she doesn't know she's wronged you. She doesn't think she has. She doesn't want forgiveness. You know what she wants? Justification. She wants you to come to her and say, sweetheart, behold, I see you, and in thee there is no sin. Would that work better? Like, and I'm working on it. I need to write that down. (laughs) Write that down. Uh, She doesn't want to be forgiven. She wants to be justified. She wants to be seen as if she never did anything wrong. Look, look, just, gosh. It says we're justified. God looks at us not to forgive us, to declare us as if we had not sinned. 
by his grace as a gift, and we say, oh, that is too good to be true. And the answer is, yep, it is. He can't really do that and that be, look, I love it. It's fantastic. It's just not fair. It's not okay. It's not just. That's not the character and nature of God. Even I know that. If he's going to justify me, somebody's got to pay. Somebody is going to have to pay for my sin, or he can't do that and still be just. Critical. So let me just tell you, Daniel, whatever the next few verses say, if they do not speak to a payment made by someone righteous on behalf of you and I who are not righteous to placate the wrath of God, then I don't have good news for you this morning. I got really bad news. The really bad news is we're all going to hell. And deservedly so. It's exactly what we've earned. And so we're about to go in and we're looking. Lord, let there be a payment made. Or I stand condemned eternally. Here we go. Justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The redemption. Redemption means to let loose a slave. Picture a slave on the block. The only way that this slave can be freed is for someone to pay a price. They call that price the redemption price. The redemption price must be made so that the slave can be freed. We are enslaved to our sin. We stand on the blocks condemned. And unless someone pays the ransom price for our sin, we cannot be freed. That's why the scripture says we've been bought at a price. We're not our own. And for freedom that Christ set us free. But that's not far enough. You can't just be bought at a price and set free. Your sin has to be dealt with in a way that's satisfactory to God. That's deep. It ain't deep enough. And praise God, we're not to the end of the phrase. Through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Now we're getting somewhere. Don't be afraid of that word propitiation. It means to satisfy the wrath of a deity. In this, in this context, God. Satisfy the wrath of God. Now we're getting somewhere. That the wrath of God, and by the way, he's not angry at Jesus, not even angry at you and I. He's angry at our sin, our condition of sin that has violated his holiness. Something has to satisfy his wrath against our sin. And so he who had no sin became sin that we could become the righteousness of God, and justly so. So we are propitiated. His wrath is satisfied by a currency. Did you see it? The currency is his blood. His blood shed was a redemption price and a propitiatory sacrifice that we can be set free and God can indeed be just. Now that is good news. That's the gospel. I've been reading the Chronicles of Narnia to my oldest three, Caleb six, Luke four, Jonathan three, in the last couple of weeks, we've read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. We ought to finish tonight. We have two chapters left. We are having so much fun reading this book. 
which is an incredible picture of the gospel. And it's not meant to be an exact picture of the gospel, but it's an incredible picture of the gospel. And, and, and very quickly, if you don't understand, these, these four main characters, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, these four children, find their way through a, uh, a um, wardrobe at a professor's house into this land called Narnia where the animals are like humans. And uh, this land of Narnia is uh, frozen solid, um, and there's a white witch in control, and it's under the curse of the white witch, which means that it's always wintertime and there is no Christmas. Now, that sounds horrible to me. To a kid, that's like the worst thing ever. You know, always winter, never Christmas. And it's because of the spell she's put over the land. Well, Edmund's the first one to run into the white witch, and she bedazzles him, as she will often do. She puts a spell on him, appeals to the lust of his flesh, that he wants some of her Turkish delight. And she appeals to the pride of life, that she'll make him king over his brothers and sisters. By the way, I would never fall for that. I'm sure you wouldn't either. Edmund fell for it, okay? There was sarcasm there. We've all fallen for that, okay? And so you know what Edmund does? Same thing you and I have done. He's betrayed truth. He's betrayed God. He's betrayed everyone he loves, all for the purpose of himself being king and being God. And so he, he pays his loyalty to the queen, and they develop their plan, the white witch, <clears throat> He's going he's gonna to deliver his brother and his sisters so that she can kill them all. And he doesn't know that yet, but he's, he's on board with this deal. Well, it turns out Aslan comes in. Aslan is the great king who has been missing, depicted as a lion. You can't help but love Aslan. The whole land loves Aslan. They yearn for his presence. He's been gone. He shows back up. Winter begins to turn to spring. And, um, and he, he meets up with the other three children before the white witch can get to them. They're safe in his presence. And they send out a search party for Edmund, and they find Edmund, and they rescue him and bring him, and Edmund and Aslan go for a walk, and it's just beautiful. I teared up during the dadgum walk between Edmund and Aslan because I saw myself trying to figure out how to tell Jesus how sorry I was for the way my life had been in a violent offense to the cross and everything he paid on my, and I watched Edmund, he stumbled, he couldn't, and Aslan said, you don't have to say anything, I know and I love you, and he goes, you know what, we don't have to speak of this ever again. Like east from the west, Aslan forgave him, but there's still a problem. By the way, when that happened, all three of my boys just kind of, like they just, they just had felt good. It, but the problem was the white witch comes riding in, and she stands before Aslan, and she says, Aslan, you know what I'm about to say is true. You can't just rescue Edmund and forgive him like everything's okay. You know that according to the... just nature of the emperor beyond the sea, that he is a traitor, and there is a payment demanded for a traitor, and the payment's his life. His blood is mine. You can't just take him and forgive him like that. His blood is mine. You know it's true. Peter, Lucy, Susan, tell her that's not right, Aslan. One of Aslan's guards, like a bull or something, um, says, let's just kill her. Like, my boys were like, yeah! <laughs> I had to hold them back. And here's what Aslan says. Aslan says, no, she's right. Man, you could have sucked the air out of the room in my den a couple nights ago when, when he said that. Little Jonathan, three years old, says, Daddy, she can't be right. They'll have to kill Edmund. I said, well, buddy, hang on. Let's see what happens. Aslan said, she's right. He, he has sinned. There does have to be a payment for the sin. The children are horrified. In the book, in my den, horrified. Aslan says, let me speak with the white witch alone. He gets alone with her. 
and he speaks, and he comes back and he says, Edmund will go free. My boys go, yes, Aslan, yes. All of Narnia breathed a sigh of relief. The witch went away cackling and howling with joy. Find out in the next chapter, Aslan had made a deal. And the deal was, in fact, that Edmund go free. But the reason Edmund could go free and the emperor beyond the sea not be violated in his justice, according to his law, that there must be payment for sin, was one thing. Aslan volunteered to give his life instead. Now, they didn't know that in Narnia. But when that came to the surface, my boys went white. I saw little Luke, four years old, and his eyes filled with tears. And he didn't know what to say, didn't know how to express himself. But, but we can't have, Dad, we can't have the innocent die for the guilty is what he was trying to express. You can't, you can't have that. That's, that's not right and that's wrong. And he felt the gravity of the condemnation of our sin before a just God. We couldn't quit at the end of that chapter that night. I said, look, I don't care what time it is. Let's read the next chapter because I got a feeling I know what's going to happen here. And Aslan delivers the payment of himself. And the story doesn't end. We keep reading, and we find out that Aslan, by a deeper law that exists by the same just God that says that if one is truly innocent, by the way, is there any truly innocent? Only one, only Jesus. Well, in Narnia, if one who is truly innocent gives himself for the guilty, he shall not stay bound by death. Amen? And so we watch as Lucy and Susan are crying and beside themselves as my boys can't believe this story that I'm reading them. And then all of a sudden, there's the deep panting of the breath of a very large beast. And there's a mane shaking in the sun. And there's the grumblings of a roar within. And they look up and they see the great lion and all this strength. And they say, how can it be? He's alive. The gospel message is not merely that Christ died. It's not merely that he paid the redemption price. It's not merely that he gave propitiation by the currency of his blood. It's that he's alive. He conquered sin, conquered death, that we might be free from sin. He might be wholly alive, and God might be just. Amen. Amen. That's good news. You know what my boys did when Lucy saw Aslan? Right here. All three. One of them sitting on a couch, two sitting in there. All three. <laughs> Sometimes I wonder, where is that in me? Where is that in you? Why don't we live lives in reality of that truth? Why are we overflowing with joy? Because he is alive, we are freed, and God is just justified. You see why Martin Luther said, joy filled every chamber in my heart. Changed his life. The gospel doesn't save us and not transform us. Changes us, transform us. Matter of fact, watch this clean up right here. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. In other words, since the time of Noah forward, he should have obliterated the human race. That's what we deserve. But he didn't. He was patient. 
All of man's sin came due on Calvary. 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time. All of our sin came due at Calvary. Past, present, future, he paid it all. Don't miss this last phrase. So that he might be just and justifier. What a statement. Just and justifier of the one who has faith. That's the fifth time, Leanna, that we've seen the one who has faith. That's five. That he can be just and justifier. Remember, that was our problem. That was our problem. That's not possible. You can't declare innocent, guilty people innocent and just let them go and still be just. You can't do it. Paul says, oh, yes, he can. And here's how. He loved you and I so much that he demonstrated his love in this. He sent his son, Jesus, to pay the ransom price for our sin as a propitiation by his blood, and we receive it by faith. That's the solution to our conundrum, the gospel. Remember what Paul said? In the gospel, Hank. In the gospel is revealed the solution to our problem. How are we righteous before a holy God and he still be just in the gospel? Redemption, propitiation, justification. Let me just round third and head home saying this. You know what the question of our generation is? The question of our generation is how can a loving God send people to hell? That's like the number one problem question. How can a loving God send anyone to hell and still be loving? Paul doesn't have a problem with that at all. My goodness. Paul says, are you serious? How can a loving, are you serious? That's not Paul's problem. You know what Paul's problem is? Here's Paul's problem. How can a holy God send any of us to heaven? That's the question. How can he do it? The answer justification by faith through redemption price paid by one holy and pure is a propitiation satisfying the wrath of God through his blood that's once and for all past present future for anyone who would believe that's how amen and let me just ask the question what is our response to the gospel well look at verse 27 then what becomes of our boasting? <laughs> what becomes of our boasting? Anybody going to put pride in your flesh after the last six verses? Anyone proud of what they've accomplished on this earth for God and his glory? Apart from God's grace? No one. What becomes of our boasting? Three words. It is excluded. You guys fill in the blank. It is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Not one word. Our response to the gospel of Jesus Christ is humility, it's gratitude. It's worship. That's it. That's it. That's it. 
Will you guys bow your heads to pray with me? You know, you know, guys, I don't know. I, I don't know in a crowd this size how many of you guys have ever heard the gospel of justification by faith presented clearly. But let me just say, if you have put your faith and your trust in anything in and of yourself to be declared righteous in the presence of God, you have been misled. And you face a just condemnation for your sin. If you sincerely trust in Christ who paid the price that both redeemed you and propitiated God's wrath if you have believed in him. And by the way, how do you know if you've sincerely believed? Well, let me say this. Have you repented of your sin? Is it just lip service? Or have you turned from sin to follow Christ even when it doesn't make sense on how you're gonna do it, even when you gotta trust him? Well, that's the question. You repent of your sin, you trust in Christ. And the beauty of the gospel says, yes, you're a wretched sinner, but even now you can be declared righteous in the midst of your sin by a God who is just by virtue of Christ. If that's your desire, even now, just form the words, express to God your sin, your need for a savior, your trust in Jesus. And the promise is that you are made righteous apart from the law by virtue of Christ. Lord, I pray that we would never, ever, ever, ever recover from the truth we have heard today, the truth of the gospel. That like my boys who could not possibly contain their excitement when they saw Aslan was alive, and they could not contain their sorrow when they saw he had died, that we would literally live in that great state of tension of how in the world could we ever get our minds around the goodness of the gospel. And instead of spending all our time trying, we would just live in the reality of unmistakable joy. And Lord, for any here today, who have been through the motions all their lives but have never embraced the reality of being justified by faith, I just pray that they surrender. they get off the treadmill of performance. They'd surrender, and they come to you by virtue of the blood of Christ. It's a gift of grace that we receive it by faith. Lord, I pray that you bring somebody in here to know you as Lord and Savior today. Somebody that stumbled in, somebody that's been in church all their life but they would have what Martin Luther had happen as they looked deeply into this text. They'd be saved, and they'd be filled with joy. I pray you would do that work to the one that desires to receive you by faith. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.